Hey guys, this is Dave from the Grey Havens, and you are listening to the True Tunes Podcast. Well, now for some non-pop music. Try this. Although I may not know you personally, one thing of which I am relatively certain is that we have been influenced by the same British pipe-smoking literature professor, theologian, and children's author, probably in ways we haven't even contemplated in a while. I can say this with some confidence because whether you're a theology wonk, a movie buff, a fan of rock and roll, or some combination of all three, few wordsmiths have spoken into the way we think, feel, and imagine ourselves, and this journey we are on, like C.S. Lewis. Hello, I'm John J. Thompson, and on this episode of the True Tunes Podcast, we will go deep into that good country, listening for the echoes Lewis has left for us. Shining gold like summer now Calling down through the clouds Are you sunward sailors now? Think it's time, think it's time We tread the dawn On the first half of the show, we visit with an auspicious independent folk pop band who have defied all odds on their hero's journey and have just completed an amazing new album directly inspired by one of Lewis's most challenging books. On the second half, we crank up the True Tunes jukebox and push her to her limits as we take a tour through a vast realm of music from the last 50 years that has been shaped by this incredible author. What was it about his words that have inspired so many? And what morsels might we take with us as we head out into our shadowlands today? Excited to have Grey Haven's vocalist, songwriter, keyboardist, and guitarist David Radford with me today on the True Tunes podcast. The Grey Havens inspire me on a few different levels. For one thing, and probably most importantly, they're just really, really good. 
but they're also managing to craft a full-time viable career in today's challenging music industry without a record label. I know we have many artists listening, so that is always something worth learning about. Also, I love how they dig deep into sources of inspiration and wisdom in their work. Their latest album, Blue Flower, joins a long tradition of progressive creative works inspired by the words and practices of the British author C.S. Lewis, who clearly has a lot to offer young artists almost 60 years since his passing. But first, let's take care of a little housekeeping. I want to take a minute to thank our Patreon backers. We're really still just getting started with the Patreon thing, but our Zoom hangs have been a lot of fun. We even did a surprise live stream concert and interview with Romer one night. Our patrons get early access to shows, and we send them special higher quality audio files that they can download. If you're loving this show and would be willing to donate a few bucks a month to help us do what we do, you can find the link on the show notes page or go to patreon.com slash truetunes and check it out. There is a lot more we are hoping to do with this show, and having a little more financial support would definitely make that possible sooner. Thanks so much. But maybe I am so. Grey Havens have built a successful, thriving folk pop career as independent artists since 2012. Despite being inspired by old books, real instruments, and a gently confident approach to faith and spirituality, over the last nine years or so, they have never lost their fresh, youthful, unique sound. Their latest release, however, has achieved a new, almost effervescent level of thoughtful joy. While Blue Flower is likely the most literarily specific collection of songs the Grey Havens have released, it is also, to my ears anyway, their most accessible. When faced with the shutdowns and quarantines forced by COVID-19, David and his wife Licia, who also sings and plays percussion, guitar, mandolin, and ukulele, decided to take their home recording capabilities to the next level. While still working with longtime collaborator Ben Shive, the Radfords were able to engage their creative process in a much different way this time around. We'll hear all about that, their history together, and the fantastic image of the blue flower David discovered in a C.S. Lewis book, and how that inspired this batch of songs. While I know many of their fans will be listening, and will likely know their backstory already, I'm hoping to introduce a good number of folks to them as artists, and especially to this brilliant album. So tell me about your background with the, the Greyhaven. So and tell me who she is. Yeah. So Alicia is my wife. She's at home taking care of our newborn of 13 days at the time of the recording. And wow. congratulations. Yeah. Thank you. And we met. I got back from college, and my family had started going to a new church. My sister was going on this trip, and I sort of just tagged along. So I didn't know anybody from the group. I go a few days early. Leisha's there. And uh, that was our, our first meeting. And the guy that was mentoring me heavily recommended that I ask out Alicia after the trip was over. Hey, are you dating anybody? No. Are you looking to date anybody? No. Uh, well, I think you should try and ask out Alicia Keys, which was her name at the, 
at the time. Alicia Keys? No, Alicia Keys. It's like, <laughs> it's like Alicia without the uh. So we go on a few dates, doesn't work out. We just decided to be friends. My mom, though, is a, a guitar instructor and a voice instructor. And so she's a big fan of Alicia. And to kind of keep her in view, offers Alicia, quote unquote, free voice lessons at our house. <laughs> to kind of keep Alicia in the in the foreground in the picture and since my mom had taught Alicia how to play guitar Alicia sang something six months into dating and I had never really heard her up close sing anything I was like the, so the lights kind of went off at that moment like huh. what if we sang together because up until that point the whole plan was for me to be just try the singer-songwriter thing I went to school for music education but I, I kind of halfway through realized I I wanted to at least try the right. singer-songwriter thing out of college. And it wasn't until after I heard her sing that I thought, well, you know, if this works out, um, and, and we were kind of already faded at that point. The trajectory was, we're going to get married, but uh, this was a really nice bonus. <laughs> You've dropped a few little morsels in here. A mission trip a mentor that's telling you who you should yeah. ask out, a mom yeah. who yeah. brings her in. Like, it sounds like you come from either a cult or <laughs> a very, very religious and structured and intentional kind of background. So tell me about the yeah, spiritual yeah. background and how that would that's have even good... factored into you doing music. So I grew up as a pastor's kid. My dad is a... <laughs> <laughs> there we go. Uh, so my dad is currently a pastor in Nova Scotia, but I grew up in church every week hearing the story of the Bible, hearing the story of Jesus, hearing what Christians call the gospel. And uh, it wasn't until around 17, 18 that that became real, I think because of the community element. I mean, there's there's only so much the cerebral pro, uh, cerebral or intellectual side of things can grab you i mean you can intellectually assent right even people that aren't maybe identifying as christians can could intellectually assent that god exists and maybe jesus was real or whatever but those are just ideas until they kind of um they can be just ideas and i think oftentimes you need a relational or communal part of that story where, where that's lived out in community with other people and so that just wasn't a part of my life up until around 17 year 17 or 18 years old where i did have other people come into my life that were doing music in our high school or whatever as well and make me want some of what they had or be be part of be part of what they were part of and and which sounds ironic because i as i said i was a pastor's kid and i was totally in a lot of ways surrounded by a a community, but just not people my age. It was a small church. It w there wasn't a lot of me shoulder to shouldering with anybody else in this Christian thing. Shortly after becoming convinced, I went on a massive reading binge of all of the apologetic books that I could find it, to the point where I became convinced that at least on the, the is there a God or not question, uh, be became pretty heavily convinced that it, to... to not believe this would take a lot more faith, in my opinion, than to believe it, just because of just the logical aspects of it, just from a fundamental level of nothing creating nothing. Mm -hmm. I can't get there. So it's interesting, as soon as I became convinced, 
I dove into what about this? What about this? What about this? But not necessarily from a skeptical stance, just I want to know. Like, right. So that kind of bloomed in college where I was, I went to the University of Illinois and there was a really special group of people that I met there that were involved in a campus ministry. I saw these guys kind of, kind of living out, like living like this was real right. and was kind of mentored and shaped college was really like a greenhouse growth experience for me it was it was the most shaping four years of my life so far meanwhile you're interested in also being a singer-songwriter so right. was was the musical side of what you were doing always directly connected to that spiritual formation and path or were they sort of co-occurring i think that for a long time they didn't intermingle a lot i didn't listen to a lot of christian music growing up outside of church on sundays and um i listened to a lot of what my mom liked and my my dad liked simon and garfunkel cat stevens crosby stills nash billy joel james taylor (laughs) a lot of the those kind of things and a lot of storytelling kind of songwriters and i was really into it but i i really wasn't a i don't know a singer until high school before that i played trumpet a little bit of piano but high school is really when i started to grow as a musician because all the guys were joining men's choir because this girl who had just graduated college was now the the choir director yeah and (laughs) she was attractive and Uh, so all of the all the guys were joining men's choir and then i got a solo in the men's choir and that did nothing good for my ego at 14 years old but it made me want to pursue singing more right and it gave me a lot of joy and just some up until then i was just sports ice hockey baseball those were my main sort of passions i would i wanted to be a hockey player you don't really have a hockey player no i don't i don't yeah (laughs) yeah yeah um but that all shifted in in high school and so that's what um met i guess this kind of formed or early forming musician 17 or 18 years old just getting into songwriting or whatever met a newfound faith Right, and and now when you when you started to do music with Leisha, basically, are you saying that you kind of started on that path together? You from the beginning, you were both doing it as a couple, or were you already down that path yeah, a little so bit before you it, knew it, that she could join you? Right, I had already in college uh, got my feet wet with performing. I would do like the open mic nights at the bars right. on campus. I would, I would. You know, and there was a lot of, I was in all of the, the choirs and the, a lot of performance opportunities. And then post-college, I was in a dueling pianos band for a little bit. For five years, actually, me and my friends started a, a dueling pianos band. And, the, and now they're like a national franchise and they've done really well. But the wedding singer, the, you know, whatever singer, the cocktail singer, like, and in uh, any, in all venues, I've played it. And that was my experience post-college. That's, you know, around the same time that I'm meeting Lisha, my wife, you know, going on this 
going on this trip that I mentioned, just post-college, I was immediately playing these live performances. And she wasn't, as I said, musically public <laughs> right. uh, up until we got married. Okay. And then it was like, hey, do you want to you wanna be on the album? Because a, a week after our, our wedding, we're in Nashville, or I'm in Nashville starting the EP, the six songs that we had kickstarted. And would you would you sing on it? You know, and she was really nervous, and she's like, "Okay, have her sing on it." And then we just kind of became this group. Stealing glances from a distance, never thought that I would be the one you'd wanna hold and sing with every night when i saw your face and heard your voice i never thought that we would dance and fall in love so call me crazy if you want but let's get married Whoa. let's get married Whoa. let's get married Whoa. Whoa. so your main instrument is piano and hers is guitar I write on guitar and piano kind of equally. She plays a smattering of things. She didn't grow up playing anything, but she'll play whatever is needed for the song. So she'll, she wouldn't consider herself like a player, but she can play right. if she has time to, to learn the thing. She'll, she'll, she's played everything from ukulele, mandolin, keyboard, you know, melodica, right. some percussion stuff. It's just whatever's needed. Yeah, it's, she's it's, great. It's very useful. Yeah. And um, she's not here, but can you kind of just briefly summarize what her musical tastes and influences were and how those meshed with yours yeah she grew up listening to a lot of musicals you know right. 50s and 60s style musical yeah. uh rosemary clooney type singers judy garland and yeah. she just loved those singers and and told me you know after we got married that she she would mimic what they were doing vocally but you know facial expressions and everything and when i met her that really wasn't something that she would share with anybody as far as wanting to be on stage singing anything mm. i mean she would sometimes sing it at our church just because she got dragged into it but she had no it wasn't on her radar at all to bring that kind of passion for for music it was very private in other words her but she had a big appreciation for for music and musical theater and, and all that stuff. So, but again, it wasn't until my mom, I think, taught her some guitar that she felt maybe comfortable publicly playing something. Because if you're just a vocalist, it's really hard in a social setting to, to sit down and be like, you guys want to hear me just sing? <laughs> right. You, you know, be, you there's be no a special <laughs> kind of confidence. Right. There's no that. real platform or real natural opportunity for that. Whereas right. if you play an instrument, right. And you're just the behind. you're just kind of hanging all together, and there's right. a guitar going around. It's right. it's so much easier to share that. So was that first project you're talking about already called Grey Havens? Yeah, we we kickstarted the album. We had finished it. We didn't know what we were going to call ourselves. We we were kind of getting desperate for a band name, and we reached out to our backers, our Kickstarter backers, and said, "Hey, we need a band name. We've exhausted all of our options. We don't like anything. Here are some things we like." Here's some words we like. Here's a Tolkien yeah, book. Exactly. Here's and, and, 37 <laughs> references in here. And and uh, somebody came back with the Grey Havens. And 
It was something that we had actually considered before we sent off the request, but I think it was just something about seeing it again pop across our radar that we were like, okay. And we had a song called Gray Flowers. Right. Um, so we thought, okay, where are the Gray Havens? Here we go. And, and what just, year was that? 2013. The color-coded town, they had one rule No grays allowed, it was a great offense It brought no compliments A stranger to the town, he came and met a girl That very few would say is worth thinking of Still he fell in love And he brought her flowers every day them she loved him she never felt that way but they said hey those flowers they are gray they can't stand no no well well we'll let it slide but read our signs we don't like gray i feel blessed to have always had partners bouncing things off yeah and never it's not just my ideas and i've got somebody there uh, with me that's helping to reflect these things so now how many projects have you done since then so we did that first ep of six songs and since then we've put out three full-length albums and we are currently releasing as singles this fourth album right and it's all independent you've never correct signed a record label and this is your full-time thing you're correct you're full-time musicians yeah raising a family second kid just born living in a home yeah driving cars eating food like normal people <laughs> as musicians like i'm 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 kidding but not like yeah. people think it's impossible to make a living in music and I, I remember a couple years ago finding out you were playing here on campus mm -hmm. and thinking it would be a small, you know, yeah. indie band playing in a, and it, it was in one of the bigger rooms and it was packed. They, they were almost couldn't get me in to see you. You guys have a big following. You're, mm -hmm. it's, so tell me a little bit about how this has worked for you before we get into this record, which I'm really excited to talk about. You guys are making this work. You've got a mm -hmm. following and you're doing exactly what you want to do, but I think a lot of the younger artists need to hear how this can how this can work. So, I I can be pretty hardcore as far as if I like almost to a detriment. Sometimes I'm it, it can be a, a a good thing and a bad thing. I get consumed pretty easily by a project, and in the early days, we put our album out on Noise Trade. And 10,000 people downloaded it. So we, we all of a sudden had these 10,000 email addresses after we put out this six-song EP. And we're like, well, let's email everybody and say, well, let's come play. Can we come play in your living room? 10,000 house shows. Yeah, yeah exactly. Can, can we, <laughs> every one of you. Um, and we had some models that were going before us that I was calling all the time. They were kind enough to take my calls. Jenny and Tyler, just wonderful musicians and, and husband-wife duo that really uh, Tyler specifically mentored me and I was just taking all my cues from them just like okay you do house shows great we're gonna book a house show tour I'm gonna email all these people I'm gonna email every single church that you guys have ever played or anybody similar to what you guys have ever done every single church that's hosted 
name the artist that's any anywhere near the sphere find the person see hey can we just come play can you just can you just let us play it's it's not we're not going to even charge you that much money like 150 bucks you know like to just come right. and pay for our, our hotel and our or our or our food or something like that right. and we just play and a lot of people were responsive and receptive to yeah you just just come and and so we did uh we packed up our four tourists at the time i'd done the dueling pianos thing right so i at least knew how to set up some audio and get get some levels and all that but i'd never been to a house show before but we we just booked a house show tour and we just showed up and people came out i mean sometimes it'd be packed at like house shows you can't really get too packed you know right 50 people can feel really full. Right. And that was probably the most that we would have at a, at a at a show. And those aren't even people that are familiar with us. A lot of times it's just people who know the hosts. Right. And and But connecting with 50 people in a house show is a lot easier than connecting with 50 people in a coffee house. That's true. They, that's true. Not, they have no relationship with anybody. It's a deeper experience right. for sure. Right. And so we did that. Sometimes five people would show up. You know, and you just have to yeah. play every kind of, even the most terrible shows right, exactly. you learn, you walk into, you think this, this night's going to be a disaster and always something redeeming comes out of it. You always learn something yeah. about it. But I just think in those early year, for the first up until COVID hit, <laughs> so the first, mm-hmm. I don't know what that is, seven or eight years of doing this, it's just been a nonstop uh, hamster wheel type of thing where you're just, you're always trying to find places to play and always reaching out to, to people. It's a lot of cold knocks on doors, basically. But eventually, people started to have a name association. Don't go anywhere. We've got more with David Radford of the Grey Havens right after this. It is harder than ever for us to stay connected. There's so much noise out there that it can be impossible to lock in on the signals we really want to hear. When it comes to the True Tunes conversation, there are a few things you can do that will really help us stay connected with you. First, sign up on our email list. It really is important to know that we can communicate directly with you without having to pay a middleman, like Facebook, for you to see what we post. Second, make sure to watch for the confirmation email and confirm it. Then add us to your contacts so our messages don't get caught in your spam filters. Next, find us on Facebook at TrueTunesNow and like us there. Find us on Instagram at TrueTunesMusic and follow us there. And you can follow me on Twitter at John J. Thompson. Thanks. If you would be interested in having me come speak at your school, venue, pub, cave, brewery, or house show, drop me a line at jjt at truetunes.com and let me know. We're collecting contact info and ideas for possible True Tunes tour, not unlike the sipping tour I did a few years ago when my book Jesus Bread and Chocolate was released. These things can range from large-scale onstage talks to conversations in living rooms around a record player. I'm just really interested in taking this show on the road. If that's sounds good to you let me know okay back to my conversation with david radford of the gray havens have you ever missed somewhere that you never been before like there's a memory Except you don't remember anymore 
feel the weight in the silence And when the night starts getting cold And it's been like that for a long, long time And I heard we got a longer way to go They say we're in for an endless winter Till we're gone Oh, when I search that sunrise Feels like I belong To an endless summer Somewhere Are we meant for an endless Now we're up to this season, yeah. and all of a sudden there's COVID. All of a sudden you yeah. can't go out. and So where are we now in this journey? So, so spring of 2019, we are finishing up a tour for our then recent album release called She Waits. It was a concept album about heaven, and we had done a lot of shows. And just for a number of reasons, we were particularly exhausted during that time did did a lot of shows touring around with our i think then four-year-old you know he's sleeping on a mattress in the church somewhere while we're playing the show or or you know uh it was a, a mix of, of churches and clubs and things like that and and we i just knew that when it was when it was all over that i would be back at home with a blank uh, notepad and a pen and I just felt like I didn't have anything to say. But I did remember, while we were on tour, a book recommendation that a friend had given me a while back. I'm a big fan of C.S. Lewis, and he recommended that I read um, a book called Planet Narnia by Michael Ward. And in the book, basically the gist of it is, Lewis archetyped each of his seven Chronicles of Narnia books after the traits and characteristics uh, mythologically ascribed to the seven planets in the medieval planetary system. Right. So uh, the sun inspired Tread the Dawn, the moon inspired Silver Chair, you know, Jupiter inspired the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And basically, it was just something that I that I read and, and was, my interest was piqued by because I had read the Chronicles of Narnia, I had read a lot of Lewis, and it was just one of those fascinating things that grabbed my interest to the point where I thought, well, maybe maybe my next project is is something down this road so then i read the chronicles of narnia seven times in a row and was like maybe i can create (laughs) something and we were moving at the time so it was a lot lot of audible and and driving around to storage units listening and that was what it was looking like it was shaping up to be and i was drawing all these musical sketches out on my uh, computer at home and and then at the end of the quote-unquote like research process for the album, I was making all these categories of things I could write about and, and kind of do that were exciting. And at the end of that process, I thought, you know, I'd read some biographies on Lewis by now, but I want to hear from his own mouth or pen or whatever his story. How would he say, looking back, he was shaped and, and all of that and, so I read Surprised by Joy, which I had heard quoted a lot. You just had never read that? I just never read it. That's amazing. I think that's why the 
the book hit me like it did. It was like this person that you, for over a decade, have spent a lot of time with now. I've been reading Lewis a lot. And the premise of Surprised by Joy is Lewis's experience with this desire that he um, has multiple encounters with throughout his life. It's this enormous bliss that he would call or this painful stab of just a really intense desire for what he didn't know. But it would come through the mediums of art and nature and story. And I think particularly for him, I think if you want to compare people's minds to maybe like an antenna, I think him is just being the kind of genius that he is. I mean, nobody can deny reading Lewis that he's at another level, you know, just compared with your average person. And so I just think his antenna, antenna was kind of maybe gold plated or something or able to pick up the the signals a little bit more clearly and strongly than your average person. And so I think he is speaking to a universal experience and the experience he calls joy, which he defines as an unsatisfied desire, more desirable than any satisfaction. It kind of rushes in. He feels this great emotion for like okay, wherever this is coming from, I want to know where that is so I can go visit and live there. And he continually held up different possible sources to his mind and and asked the question, is this where it comes from? Mm -hmm. Is it science or is it romance or is it fill in the blank? Like all the different ideologies and philosophies he he kind of held it up and said is this where the desire comes from and and he kept being disappointed by the the answer which was no right and so the the book is basically about his eventually coming to terms with this actually ends up in his mind coming from the place he abandoned at 13 years old which is the god of the bible Mm -hmm. you know he he at 10 years old is is told about God and Jesus and that there's an everlasting, you know, afterlife. And he kind of believes it and struggles with it and quickly sheds that idea as he get, you know, as he's 13 years old. And so as he's looking for the answer in his life, he's excluding that in the back of his mind as a possibility. Mm Mm-hmm because he thinks he's already kind of explored it and found it to be not, you know, the source or, or mm-hmm. whatever. And so the story is about him kind of coming back around to that after a long, long journey. And it's interesting that in that journey, you say the God of the Bible, and, and that's ultimately true, but it's also the God of that bliss. It's the God right, exactly. of that yeah. beauty. It's the God of that joy. Yeah, that's right. And he has to come to a new understanding because that's not the God that he had imagined right. when he had rejected it. Right. And that's what often happens with people. They yeah. they reject. Are you rejecting the real Jesus or just the one that you yeah. have heard about and and, and have and demonstrated been, for you very poorly? Right. right? Exactly. <laughs> By his yeah. emissaries. Right? I think a lot of people are walking yeah. away uh, from who they think is God, but is just a weird kind of off brand, you know, a poorly uh, presented version of of who that is. Heard my name called
So Lewis had locked in in Surprised by Joy on one particular iconic image that you latched onto for this album. So tell me about how the blue flower grabbed your attention and became the both the title of the album and, and the song and how that then shifted your attention away from Narnia in general to just this idea of So of a few chapters into the book, he is describing... I think he's describing his first encounter with this joy and it's through the medium of nature. You know, he grew up in Northern Ireland. I think Belfast is where he was born. So just surrounded by just beautiful landscapes. And he's looking out of his window as a kid at these Castle Ray Hills. And he says, there I was at six years old, a votary of the blue flower. That scene through that came this first experience with with joy and the votary of the blue flower the votary is an admirer of but i read that sentence a few times and and it's he moves on from it fairly quickly and he (laughs) never brings it up again and we're supposed to just know exactly it was like (laughs) it was like a hyperlink right so the blue flower just caught my interest I ended up looking it up. I forget if I did it in the moment or, or later on. But and it's it, capitalized. Yeah, exactly. Our, it's capital B, capital mm-hmm. F. So yes. you could tell that this was an actual right. formal thing. Right. And it was used as a symbol in, I think, 1800s German um, literature, uh, specifically in one book. But it is being used in those arenas or, or in that kind of style of writing as the symbol of what Lewis is describing. Right. And so as I continue to read the book, this image of the blue flower started to kind of make its way and stand forth to become the physical icon and symbol of what joy is. Mm -hmm. And that led to me writing the, this blue flower was the first song that I wrote from the album. And I didn't know it was going to be an album called Blue Flower. It was just, I was trying to capture this intriguing sort of initial experience with joy in that song. And then it sort of just snowballed into, okay, well, what if this became, what if this was more like a diamond? And I just came at it from like all these, you know, the the album is just like a turning of the diamond and seeing joy or trying to get at that experience. Sorry, blue flower Who's to say Where you come from Feels like Far away Felt a blue flower In my soul You got me long 
But then that when you go to the paper, when you go to the blank notebook and it's time to create, you had to go beyond yourself. Mm -hmm. And that's something that Lewis talks very clearly about that he had to go back and realize that I think if I recall correctly, there's a scene when he he's like up against some kind of a bush and like the smell of the bush right. takes him into something that's a, like a memory of a memory. Yeah. You know, and when he gets out of himself and then even looks back on his own memories, you go then and look into his memories yeah. and his story and you're pursuing this blue flower, this mm -hmm. elusive joy and not even just elusive joy, but what does joy even mean? Yeah. That to me is a really interesting jumping off point. So mm -hmm. tell me the next step in the process where you said, okay, I'm going to pursue this a little bit further. So before I landed on, okay, I want to make an album about the blue flower. I had been making all of these sketches in my recording software while I was reading all of the Chronicles of Narnia books, I was just making musical sketches. I wasn't really committing to any kind of lyrical content yet, maybe like a, a smattering of, of ideas. So as soon as I had finished Blue Flower and des decided that was the direction I wanted to go, I had a lot of musical sketches already waiting for me. And so that was a real gift. And that, I think, allowed me to snowball the process a little bit more quickly than I would usually instead of just sitting there and okay I've written this song it wasn't like that I, I had a lot of things sitting there for me and so it's really thankful for that I I tend to I'm a slow writer lyrically it takes me a long time and I, I think that if Alicia wasn't involved in the process I don't think I would ever finish anything oh gosh because yeah. I never feel strongly enough about anything that I've done, maybe once in a blue moon, but I never feel strong enough on my own that I can just move forward and know that, okay, that's good. Let's go on to the, to the next thing. And so Alicia would uh, come in often and hear the ideas as they're going and say, oh yeah, that's, that's good. Or, you know, that's, mm -hmm. that doesn't, that doesn't ring true to, to, I think what you're trying to go for. And so that was massively helpful as I was sketching out each of these songs and be, is this even is this right. is this just, am i spinning my wheels or and she was really encouraging so i liked that it doesn't become a tribute to surprised by joy you are inspired by the metaphor yeah but i'm trying to think of the name of the song that is about lewis's visit to oxford oh right yeah what's that song called it's possible it's possible how you start and you're it's got a very different energy yeah for one thing different than i've heard you guys do before yeah um and in fact this whole project has a yeah a kind of a different energy which i think is it possible that leaning into somebody else's story kind of opened up some sonic doors that so. you might have felt more confident going there I because so. it was somebody else's story yeah <laughs> but that song i really loved how it doesn't sound like Oxford. It doesn't sound British. It doesn't. It, right. it sounds like a pop, upbeat, yeah. kind of funky <laughs> tune, and yet it's about this observation, like, oh, you know what? I was just looking at the city from the wrong side. Yeah. Um, a lot of these inspirations from the book were more, you know, just just launching off points, and after that, it was kind of anything goes, and and 
musically or lyrically i mean certainly with any piece of music or any book that you write or any anything that you're you're creating your own experiences have to inevitably weave themselves into into the storyline and into the lyrics and so not only is this it was inspired by lewis's experience with joy but i'm certainly bringing my own you know voice and stuff that he didn't say necessarily in the way but my own kind of this is how i would maybe express what i think he's getting at and, and my own experience with it Sonically, though, it definitely feels like a new soils being turned over, some new energy. So, a couple of things. We have, on the last three full-length albums, including this one, worked with a producer and good friend, Ben Shive. Oh, yeah. And he's an incredible yeah, musician. He's I mean, he's, I've never met anybody at his caliber. He's, yeah, he's absolutely amazing. incredible. And he's a great fit for us. And the last two albums we recorded at his studio, and this time around we, we recorded it at our house. And he graciously allowed me to step into a co-producer role where the sessions lived on my computer. We played musical chairs a lot from day to day. And that was his MO, I think. I think he uh, mentored me in a lot of ways and and we had talked about it. So the first couple of days of recording, we sat down and said, okay, here's maybe how the process is going to go. And he was like, I, I want you to, to be in the chair more. And it became real like day two of actual recording because he got up and threw me into the, in the chair where it can be scary. And he's like, oh, I want you to try a beat here, which is not my comfort zone at all. I want you to to try this and at that point it became real to me like oh he really means he wants me to try these things and i would just like with fear and trepidation like try my ideas out and but with the safety net of him being kind of two feet away and him being able to save it if if it if it turned like out you not think you're again. riding your bike but dad still got his hand on the back of the seat. right and um in the past i think i was not a very good uh very efficient artist to have in the studio with a producer because I want to try everything. You know, I want to try all the ideas. And because it's at his studio in the past, it's like if I don't voice this idea right now, it will just be lost right. forever. Right. Or well, it's, it's a weird dance because he's working on something that he needs flow and concentration for. Mm -hmm. But there's a fine line. Like if you have an idea that would possibly short circuit that, what he's working on or overtake that or you have to voice that at some point yeah. you you want to give them time to flesh out their idea right. but there can also on, on in hindsight if you didn't say your idea he's right. like well why did we spend an hour on why didn't you say something right. but you could also say something too soon and you could miss his idea so that dance i don't think i ever figured out working at his studio because I, I didn't, I just felt like kind of a nuisance to be like, can we try this? And, and also, before I forget, can we go back to this cello <laughs> three part that we, what? Whereas in the recording 
at my house and the sessions living on my computer, I had 100% peace of mind that I could try any idea I wanted outside of the eight hour window during that day that we were working together. So I could wake up at 6 a.m. and get four hours of ideas down if I really wanted to and try it all. Or after he goes home, I could try it. And it led to me not talking nearly, shouting out my ideas nearly as much during the day. And it relieves relieves so much pressure for me because I just knew like, hey, if I don't like this, I'll just see if I can come up with something better later. And I think that changed the process completely. Yeah. And the dynamic between Ben and I, I think, improved dramatically because of that. That's an encouragement and a challenge to young artists to say it really does matter that you have the ability to navigate a computer and put some ideas totally. down. Totally. Yeah. Like, That's a game changer. Yeah. I was going down by the river, found I was cold and couldn't speak. I started hearing something in the silence next to me i remember now in december how like a split second dream i heard a summer song if i get it wrong you can find it in the east it's going this was the first time that all the songs were written before we started a a, a project in the past maybe you know half the record was written and we're kind of just i'm writing writing in the studio and and so we were able to kind of arc out the album before it even started and produce it that way. Like, okay, track four, what have we seen so far in the album? Where do we want to, what does the listener want to hear right now? Oh, maybe it should be an up song. Let's do it's possible. Or, or So that was an interesting production yeah. choice as well. Yeah. You got a song with actually some like pretty driving, like a lead guitar part. Oh, Rhythm it. of the East. Yeah. yeah. That's like the third track or something? Second track. Second track. So that's a different tone for you guys. Yeah. I don't remember ever hearing you guys cut through like that before. Yeah, I was so pumped that we got an electric guitar solo <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> on a song. I was like, oh, this is a rock band. Yeah. yeah. Tell me about the players on the record. You got some great players on the So song. Will Chapman from Colony House is playing drums. And whenever we can get him on a song, he's our he's our go-to. He has a great energy. And he's so fun to, to work with and to watch play in the studio. And to watch live, you know, at shows or whatever. And he has a great instinct. So he plays the drums. Nate Duggar from Drew Holcomb and the Neighbors is playing electric guitar on this album. And he is, he's so versatile and just gets it like right away. Like after one listen, he hones in on a, on a sound and electric guitar. That has to be the most versatile instrument in the world. Like, I can't think of another instrument that you can get more sounds out of. You know, obviously it's been it's being manipulated by pedals and amps yeah. and effects and all that. But he he played that solo. He yeah. he he did so many. Yeah, he added so much to it. Um, I could go on and on. Is it he, Matt Pearson, Matt Pearson on, bass? on bass? He's so curious yeah. as a as a musician. And he brings that veteran he does. spirit, but it's you know not just phoning it in, never just phoning it in. Yeah, he like, gives me hope for like what a future, you know, somebody who's been yeah. like done it for decades and still has like a an optimism about him and a just not jaded in the music industry right. and just I'm here to help serve you on your album and yeah. you know. But he's an amazing player. Yeah, yeah. that's a great band.
concept on this, shifting gears a little bit. First, tell me this. Who is your audience? If you were to picture, if you put on your own festival and all of your fans gathered at your festival, who is your audience? I, I think it's changed maybe a little bit from when we started. When I look at our Spotify, I mean, it's 18 to 24 is the biggest group, you know, 60% women, 40, or yeah, 40% men. And, but I, I just think it's people who are maybe looking for something a little bit different than the standard, although I don't think it's, maybe it's not standard anymore, but, but somebody who isn't a super fan of CCM stuff and is looking for something different, maybe somewhere to fan base of like a, a John Mark McMillan or, or Josh Garrels and people. So still kind of in the, when you say CCM, you're talking about proper Christian music proper. Mm-hmm. That's shorthand for contemporary Christian yeah. music, like what you hear on Christian radio. You guys yeah. definitely aren't in that yeah. realm, but you're, you're still, you still feel like you're kind of sitting in that Christian, you know, your audience is mostly people of faith. Yeah, probably. I would say so. What's interesting to me and I find kind of a personal challenge is that Lewis wrote stuff like Narnia and Tolkien wrote Lord of the Rings for everybody. Like it wasn't just for a Christian audience. Narnia was for everybody. It wasn't for Christian kids. It was for all kids. And the, the, his faith was artfully woven into the story. Yeah. And Tolkien did, did it in his own way by creating an entire world yeah. and populating it with characters that would actually act in authentic ways to that world. We as artists now in this music space are constantly struggling with this idea of how to reach, our, is our goal to reach everybody and anybody and to, to create great art or is it to create art for Christians and are we limiting ourselves when we think that way? And when Lewis talks about joy and sparking joy, is part of our job to be like that bush that he walked by that Mm -hmm. gave him a memory of a memory or to be like that piece of art, something that can spark those moments in people's lives versus creating Christian products for Christians to consume to reinforce their beliefs about the culture that they're in? I'm not sure there's... uh one right answer i think it really depends on i think there's a problem you know that exists with maybe over um, catering to some audiences but i think first and foremost what you said about great art is i think all artists start doing the thing because what they want to exist in the world doesn't exist yet and so they're wanting to come in and create something that they would want to listen to and that was my experience growing up. I didn't grow up with lots of Christian music, but all that I had heard it w- was sort of disenchanting. It, w- it wasn't something that I was into, and I wanted to create something that I would want to listen to that could be for other people, maybe that felt the same way. But I wasn't even thinking there would be an audience. I was just thinking, right. I want to create something that I want to listen to. Right. And I think... The closer you can get to that spirit, maybe the better off you'll be as an artist. Because if you want to write explicit lyrics about your faith, I think you should do that. But just do it really well and go do that, you know. But I also think 
there's a lot of that out there and I would maybe caution against just making a version of what already exists for the sake of getting an audience. I think it's a heavy temptation to do that. It's yeah. it's this is popular, this is getting playlisted, this is getting radio play or whatever. So let's make that. I think is not the best impulse to have. But it's a really tempting one, you know. Yeah. To me the one of the big differences is that his intention was to write for everybody. And I think that we sometimes sell ourselves short when we don't intend. People now need to realize there's nothing keeping us from creating beauty in a way that everybody could encounter, especially now with all of the walls down in terms of distribution, we're just putting our stuff out there. Yeah. There's there's really no reason that your work can't be heard by everybody, and it, and it should be. When Were there any other revelations for you as an artist as you encountered Lewis's motivation there in that, in his artful articulation of joy that inspired you as an artist that you think you'll carry forward beyond this particular project? Just piggybacking off what you just said about Lewis's way of, of writing, I think Lewis and Tolkien are both so popular and they're the, they're the two names that come up so often when people, what are you reading? What do you like that... It's because they're so rare and it's just not something that can be easily done. I mean, they're both just prodigious minds. I think this is why he's so loved by people of all different walks and, and faith traditions and not, you know, faith traditions is because he had a rare ability to not only be razor sharp intellectually, but at the same time, he's a romantic at heart. Mm-hmm. And he has this ability uh, to tell a beautiful, compelling story because that's what he grew up loving. And that's where he just, that's where he wanted to go. And then his whole story is about, he talks about the two hemispheres of his mind being like so far away from each other and, and irreconcilable. When he, he's a kid, he's asking the question because he's written off God, how can it be so beautiful and yet so cruel? How can it be so wonderful and so meaningless? If there's just a cold, vast, empty, mindless universe, how is it that I feel that the, like right. there is this beauty actually means something and, and it comes from somewhere. And so eventually in you know the story of Jesus to him, those two things come together right. where there's, there's to him a pretty just on the existence of God front, there's a really, really compelling logical case to be made which he makes in mere christianity he talks about it's like it's like a mansion that he invites you into but he's just inviting you into the hallway he's not bringing you down the corridor into the presbyterian's (laughs) you know corner office (laughs) or he does a great job of welcoming everybody into that and both on his essay side and, and in his fiction side and that is i think why so many people loved his work and it's something that we try to do in our music is to not only you know, say things that are true, 
but to inject that sort of transportive story element in there that what does what Lewis would call, you know, stealing past the watchful dragons of the human heart that are so opposed to anybody coming to the gates with any sort of dogmatic offerings. Certitude, right. Yeah, Yeah. and that's really hard to do. It is. Just artistically. I just love that that you guys have leaned into that longing, and I think that it's uh, it's just a, a great, rare piece of work. And I I am excited because I think there's another generation of artists coming up behind you now that will hear these things and read these books and go, oh, here's another way that we can create. Thanks for saying that. Uh, so, this is what this this at the end of the day, this was like the muse on steroids at the time you know as far as how inspired i was to to chase this thing and it's just a project that i had to write and it's it's not maybe the standard fare that's where we find community with Mm -hmm. everybody whether they've propositionally agreed with us about who jesus said he was or is or how best to take communion Mm -hmm. or not like Mm -hmm. when we are all together on that thing we're sharing that language and that's a that's a beautiful place to start and if we trust the source the source will take care of mm-hmm. sorting out the wheats and the tares later on. <laughs> we yeah. don't have to worry so much about yeah. that. Thanks for being with us today. Man. Yeah, and, thank uh, you so much for I, having me. I hope this turns into a big tour and we can see all this yeah, stuff live. Definitely. That'll be a lot of fun. But thank you. Uh, Such a great conversation and what an inspiring new album. If you haven't heard Blue Flower yet, I strongly encourage you to check it out. And for an even deeper exploration of each song, from the songwriting process itself to the way each track was built, you should investigate the Grey Havens podcast. Excellent stuff over there. Thank you, David, for visiting with us today and Talicia as well. The Greyhavens are far from the first pop group to put out music inspired by C.S. Lewis. From songs to band names, Lewis looms large, long since his passing in 1963. So, I've taken some Turkish delight, frozen it solid, and cut a really thin wafer off the end of it. Let me drop it in the coin slot here and see what happens. I'm not sure I can think of another author who has influenced modern music, and I'm not only talking about Christian music, as mightily as this British Christian apologist. Even though he has been dead since 1963, and most everyone knows that all of his books were either outright arguments for, or allegories to, the rationality and beauty of the Christian faith, Lewis is certainly one of the most influential authors and thinkers of the last century, and his influence is far from waning. Although Lewis had been writing before World War II, he came to prominence through a regular radio address he was asked to deliver on the BBC as the Germans were bombing England. Already in his 40s, he had volunteered to return to military service and was refused. One government agency tried to recruit him to use his considerable communication skills in the production of wartime propaganda, which he declined. He did, however, agree to discuss matters of Christian doctrine, dogma, and practice in ways he believed would be helpful and relevant to his countrymen. 
Those addresses became wildly popular. Several of them were later adapted into a book called On Christian Behavior, later retitled Mere Christianity. That book has sold millions of copies in dozens of languages and is considered to be one of the most influential Christian books of all time. If I find in myself desires Nothing in this world can satisfy I can only conclude That I, I was not made for to many people, Lewis is more well-known as the author of his children's books, The Chronicles of Narnia, a series of seven books that serve as an allegory for the biblical idea of the redemption of all things. Due to the depth of the imagery, the quality of the writing, and the uniqueness of the approach, the stories became internationally famous with adults as well as children. Don't stop your crying on my again. Frightening lion, no doubt Well, he's not safe, no, he's not safe Are you tempted now to run away? The king above all kings is coming down Lewis wrote more than 30 books in just under 30 years of writing. They transcended language, culture, denomination, and generations. He competed in the wide marketplace of ideas, not merely in a Christian subculture. So his books, radio addresses, lectures, and posthumous films were available to all. I shudder to think what this world would have missed out on if his wit, wisdom, and whimsy had been relegated only to Christian bookstores and an evangelical ghetto. His work inspired spiritual thought in the supposedly secular realm and provided much-needed depth and resonance in the increasingly two-dimensional space of evangelical art. So, musicians have a lot to draw from when they visit the Lewis Shelf, whether it's the more scholarly or intellectual ideas he presents in books like Mere Christianity, The Problem of Pain, Surprised by Joy, or The Four Loves, or the still theological but fantasy-based concepts he explores in the world of Narnia, his earlier science fiction Ransom trilogy, The Screwtape Letters, or Till We Have Faces, Lewis offered a rare and important exploration of Christian spirituality that balanced wonder with reason, experience with faith, and function with form. Literature was an important influence in the early days of progressive and album-oriented rock, so it was no surprise to find several bands using the name Narnia as far back as the early 70s in both Christian and mainstream rock. One, based in the UK, released a now very rare psych folk LP called Aslan is Not a Tame Lion. This band is interesting, as it included Pete Banks and John Russell, who would later go on to become founding members of After the Fire. I obsessed over them on one of our first episodes. This Narnia only lasted one year, but they did play a set at the first Greenbelt Festival in 1974. So, that's not nothing. The Swedish power metal band Narnia wears their faith on their stylish heavy metal sleeves. 
formed in 1996 by vocalist Christian Liljegren and guitarist Carl Johan Grimark, who has also recently played with one of my early favorites, Jerusalem, and our friend's Saving Machine. This Narnia has been quite successful, releasing eight studio albums, surviving a hiatus and lineup changes, and earning respect in the global metal scene. The Narnia themes were thick on their 1998 debut, Long Live the King, from the opening instrumental, Gates of Care Paravel, to the closer, Shadowlands. But for the most part, the band has evolved past such obvious Lewis references. Hard rock fans should also check out the band My Epic, who have referenced Lewis's book Paralandra on an instrumental track, and had a song called Further Up, Further In on their 2010 album, Yet. In my dreams, we throw all the mountains into the sea, and there's no distance left. We all coalesce and sprint across the There were multiple bands named after Narnia's King Lion and Christ image, Aslan. One, based in California and connected to the Calvary Chapel scene, released a very well-produced progressive tune with ELO and McCartney overtones called Who Loves the Lonely on the sixth Maranatha compilation in 1977. The side of town that never was the best. An 
80s Irish band called Aslan was one of many expected to follow in U2's boot prints. They had some chart success in the UK and developed a strong live following with songs like This Is, but as is so often the case in these stories, they just couldn't hold it together. The band imploded right as their debut single was set to be released in the States. They have since reunited and continue to write, record, and play, often celebrating their working-class Irish roots. What have you got that you can leave behind? If it fits in a box, was it a waste of time? Do you deserve how cold you feel right now? What have you learned? Did you stop to write it down? You never needed anyone But you need someone today You never needed anyone But you need someone today Back in the 70s, one of the most inventive of the Jesus music groups was the sibling trio's second chapter of Acts. Their ambitious 1980 concept album, The Roar of Love, endeavored to convert the entire storyline of the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe into funky disco-meets-pop CCM. It was as if Freddie Mercury was asked to produce ABBA and to write an elaborate prog pop musical about Narnia. Saw him running through the western wood, a very rare sight to see. If you've been listening to this show, or have been aware of the True Tunes conversation at all, you know how nuts I am for the Texas rock trio, King's X. Although their 1988 debut was named after the first book of Lewis's science fiction trilogy, they didn't feature the song Out of the Silent Planet until it opened their second album, Gretchen Goes to Nebraska, in 1989. But King's X didn't just reference lyrical ideas from Lewis, they embodied his ethos. They crafted imaginative, almost psychedelic hard rock music that told stories, asked questions, and balanced declarative statements with probing images and impressionistic references. Finding a good name for a band, or an album title, has been a problem for the entirety of the rock era. But, 
choosing a cool reference from a Lewis book was both artsy and a way to telegraph to a smaller group of hip Christians that you might be singing from the same hymnal as them. The 90s Seattle rock band Poor Old Lou took their name from The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Sixpence None the Richer references an analogy Lewis used in Mere Christianity. The Australian rock band Silverchair borrowed their name from the fourth book of the Narnian Chronicles. Over the Rhine's first album was called Till We Have Faces, and obviously there have been multiple Aslans and Narnias. Brother and sister Tyler and Maggie Heath lead a sort of progressive folk gang called the Oh Hellos that have developed a sizable following over the last nine years or so. Whether performing as a duo or with a large ensemble, the Oh Hellos generate an intoxicating, literate buzz that is highly informed by their personal spiritual perspectives, but crafted carefully to be relatable to audiences of any or no theological persuasion. Dear Wormwood, their sophomore LP, released in 2015, was inspired by Lewis's Screwtape Letters and contemporary fantasy author Patrick Rothfuss. The Heaths synthesize their spiritual imaginings into creative work that is both excellent and compelling. I have always known you, you have always been Stand you, and I will not be part of your designs. I know who I am now, and all that you made of me. I know who you are Keith McNeese is an interesting indie artist for sure. His work ranges from folk worship to breezy hip-hop, all with a singer-songwriter spirit. Back in 2012, he released an ambitious and seriously impressive 12-song album on which each song was inspired by a different Lewis book. The Great Divorce, A Grief Observed, Mere Christianity, The Problem of Pain, Surprised by Joy, even the lesser-known collection of satirical essays The World's Last Night gets a cut. There are a dozen songs in all, and a year later he remixed them all with dance beats, samples, and raps for his second edition of the album. He 
His compulsion was my liberation And my compulsion was to hit the bricks And disappear from his pursuit but didn't make it While I'm hiding from the voice of something bigger Than my hatred for some Christians or an organized religion And almost out of spite I hit my knees and prayed to him The most reluctant convert the world has seen to do But still, the selfish prodigal's return to beg his father Was his voluntary choice to be a convert, not a martyr I was dragged into the kingdom, gag kicking and screaming about Beaten down by guilt and reason, reason was loud But he was not a reason, he was reason itself And my defenses fell in shatter when I reached for the shelves Tried to hate him or dismiss him, burning endless wicks I barely rested You see the universe rings truest when you fairly tested Damascus was my tongue and spirits cried every sentence And every passing minute doubts diminished, now I'm with him Eventually, it became quite common for Christian artists to lean into Lewis for inspiration. Cademan's Call had The High Countries, Kendall Payne had Aslan, and Hillsong's Brooke Frazier had a cut simply called C.S. Lewis Song. In 2005, an entire compilation album of CCM songs inspired by Narnia was released to coincide with the debut of Disney's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe film. But back in 1992, imagine how cool it was to find a perky little B-side to XTC's Ballad of Peter Pumpkinhead single. Always Winter But Never Christmas speaks to that longing that Lewis captured so well in his initial description of Narnia, locked in its long, cold season. are a lot more, I know. I have started a playlist, and you can find the link on the show notes page or under the True Tunes profile on Spotify. It's called Clive Rocks, and if you think of a song I should add, drop me a line and let me know. Lewis has now been honored, alongside Chaucer and Dickens, with a memorial stone at Westminster Abbey. On that stone is carved one of the quotes that has been enormously influential in my life, because I first heard a similar version of it via songwriter, artist, and producer T-Bone Burnett when I was about 12 years old. Lewis says, I believe in Christianity as I believe the sun has risen, not only because I can see it, but because by it, I can see everything else. In Steve Turner's book, Hungry for Heaven, he quotes Burnett as saying, quote, If Jesus is the light of the world, there are two kinds of songs you can write. You can write about the light, or you can write songs about what you can see from the light. That's what I try to do. That sounds a lot like what Lewis was suggesting as well.
as I pull out my soapbox here. After listening back to this conversation with David, and to the Blue Flower album many times, and to all those songs inspired by Lewis's words, I've personally been challenged with two main thoughts. First, is my creative work accessible to everyone, or am I walled off at all? Walls can actually be hard to see sometimes. They might look like hedges or even stained glass, but they still form boundaries that, if we aren't mindful, block us and our ideas in and others out. The formation of niche markets can be a real help to niche artists. If you create a product that only a small subset of the culture will relate to, then it doesn't make sense to market it and distribute it to the whole community. It's much cheaper and therefore more profitable to target the most likely buyers of our product. One friend of mine compared it to fishing in a small fishing hole instead of the whole ocean. So it makes a lot of sense to focus on the areas in which we are most likely to succeed, right? But what if what we are making is not, at its core, a product? What if it really is a gift? What if the tendency to define our market has caused us to think about our calling all wrong? What if our books and music and words and paintings and conversations are supposed to be available to anyone with ears to hear or eyes to see? How might that change the nature of what we are creating, how we are distributing it, and to whom we are offering it? The second idea that has really stuck with me, almost haunting me, is the way David and Lewis talk about joy. I feel that blue flower feeling when I hear music that strikes a certain chord in my heart. I feel that blue flower feeling when I have an unexpected conversation with a neighbor or when I find that I am able to help bring about some kind of meaningful change for someone else. I think I've got a growing sense of what that ever-elusive joy feels like in my life, but am I aware of the hedges I place around it, the weeds that choke it out? Is there anything in my words or actions that are blocking others from seeing their blue flowers? I have definitely found that while the underlying root and source of joy may be universal, it comes to each of us in very specific and individual ways. The more I listen to other people's stories and learn about what brings them joy, the more inspired I become to prioritize their access to that mystery over my own. And strangely, the more I do that, the more I find blue flowers lining my own path, even, or maybe especially, when that path is a difficult one to follow. Okay, I'm climbing off my soapbox now. That's going to do it for this episode of the True Tunes Podcast. Thanks to the Grey Havens for being with us today. You can find everything you need to know about their new album at thegreyhavensmusic.com. Check out their excellent swag, give them a follow on Spotify and the socials, and dive into their awesome catalog as well. Of course, I want to thank Bruce A. Brown for producing and editing this thing with me. He was also a big help on the jukebox this time, especially as I tried to keep all those Aslans and Narnias straight. Thanks to Phil Keggy and Rex Paul for our theme song. You can find a complete list of all of the songs we used on the show notes page for this episode at truetunes.com. Make sure to sign up for the email list, leave us a good rating, and review at Apple Podcasts as well. The contents of the podcast are protected by U.S. copyright law and are the intellectual property of Gyroscope Productions with the exception of songs or clips that are from previously copywritten materials. 
Everything on this episode is used by permission or under fair use provisions. This program is intended for the private use of our listening audience. Gyroscope Productions can be reached at JJT at TrueTunes.com or P.O. Box 60401, Nashville, Tennessee, 37206. Until next time, this is JJT encouraging you to lean into the things that bring you joy, especially when those things are great tunes. Peace. Bruce can edit that part out.